Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Welcome this morning. My name is Charlie. I'm the senior pastor. If you don't know me, I hang right over here in the morning after the service. Come and say hi before we dive into what's going to be a fun passage of scripture this morning. And it's going to be that because I said so. Uh, Two things, elder uh, announcements for you. One is that Stu Brown, we announced his name about 40 days ago uh, as an elder candidate. And the time has passed for you to say bad things about him and you didn't. Good for you. And so he's officially an elder at Crossroads Bible Church. If you don't know Stu, um, you should get to know him. He's hit or miss on Sundays because he flies a lot. He's a pilot, but uh, he's been here for a while. He's a mature man, and he's going to be a great addition to the board. Uh, We'll make that announcement and get him up here in the next couple weeks to pray for him. And then two, to go along with that, we have a couple times a year something called elder listening sessions, and one is today. We've talked about it a couple times. It'll be in 203A, top of the stairs to the right, after the service. Let me set some expectations because we've done this poorly in the past. The, the last one that we did was probably five or six months ago, and we sat down in this room, and we said, hey guys, welcome to the elder listening session, and the handful of people that were there said, what do you want to tell us? And we said, this is a listening session. We're just going to listen. And they said, oh, and then there's a long pause, you know? <laughs> So let me reiterate the point of the elder listening sessions. It's not because we have something important to say. It's not because we're trying to communicate. We really believe that leadership, good leadership listens. And so we can't give answers today to some of your deeper questions probably, but what we can do is say that we're hearing you. What we can do is say that we want to listen to you. What we can do is hear from our people. And so if you have something you want to tell us, good, bad, or indifferent, come up and say hi, and, uh, and we'll just listen to you for about, we'll put like an hour cap on it just so we all don't go crazy, okay? Um, so today, as we continue in our study of Romans, we're in Romans 13, and if you know your Bibles, you're probably thinking, okay, let's see how this goes, because this is how our text starts, everybody. It starts with, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And everybody said, this is going to be a fun Sunday, <laughs> you know? Uh, before we dive in, I, I, I say that phrase just to say, hey, today's going to be a good day. And more than ever in our culture, more than ever, we are critical of everyone, especially government. And I'm not saying it's not warranted. I'm saying we are. And so at CBC, before we open the scripture each and every Sunday, we have this phrase that we like to tell ourselves, that we come here this morning knowing full well that the goal of the scripture today is to convict, not to critique. We say the move of the spirit is the inward, is inward to conviction, not outward to critique. And today when we talk about government, it's never been more true. The Holy Spirit's going to convict us this morning because we are not perfect. The Holy Spirit's going to speak to us this morning because we need to grow in our Christ-likeness. And so before we put a magnifying glass on the things that we don't like in the world, might we look in the mirror first? So today we're going to start just by praying that the Holy Spirit convicts us as we talk about how we interact with government and what that means and what that looks like and maybe God's ideal for it. So let me lead us in a prayer and I'll ask that you pray to yourself if you're comfortable. God, I'm thankful that we can gather here today and just proclaim your goodness each and every week. It's kind of the same message, but it's a really good one and a worthy one that you are good and that we need you, that you are at the depth, the top of our, of our goods in terms of order and weight, and we need to, re- to, to center our lives around you. 
Holy Spirit, today as we tackle a subject on government, just be with us. Holy Spirit, I pray for inward conviction today before outward critique. Might we be a church that literally believes and buys into the idea of the gospel, which is the restoration and reconciliation of all things, even our government. If you're comfortable, I'd ask you to just take a couple of seconds and say a prayer and ask that the Holy Spirit this morning might, might speak to your spirit. As you pray for me, that I might aptly point us to God's big idea in this text, that we might see the goodness of God through a text that sometimes has been misused over the years. Holy Spirit, go before us this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Romans 13 verse 1 starts like this, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. It's a sticky statement. Do you know why? Because sometimes, this can be a shocker to you, sometimes governments aren't perfect. I know, catch your breath. Sometimes governments do things that aren't perfect. Sometimes they don't help people, they hurt people. I went to college at a place called Wheaton College, and when I was there my first year, they were called the Wheaton Crusaders. When I left, we were no longer the Crusaders because we didn't think that was a great idea. We were the thunder. There's a philosopher and a theologian who says this about our text today. Few sayings in the New Testament have suffered as much misuse as this one. Be subject to the governing authorities. I can give you example after example of where maybe the government has gone wrong and the church has been intermingled in that. Where people use this verse to quote and then say God is behind injustice, whether it's the Crusades in the Middle Ages or slavery at the beginning of this country or Germany in the 1930s. I can give you examples, and you know them, of times and places where governments have gone wrong and then churches don't stand up and stop it. I can give you those examples, but we live in a time when now we distrust government because of phrases like this. So my question this morning amidst all of what the Bible teaches about how we're supposed to live within the confines of the ordered authority in our world is what do we do with this? What does it mean? A couple stats that kind of blew me away a little bit. Pew Research said that, and this is a 2016 stats, that Americans um, left the church. They left their childhood religion and adulthood at 16% because they say that their church was too focused on politics. They had a hard time with that. Russell Moore is a writer and a theologian says, we now see young evangelicals walking away, not because they don't believe in the church, but because they believe the church itself does not believe what the church teaches. How do we, in a world that's so politicized, how do we differentiate between the church's role and the government's role? And look, we, we talked about politics a few weeks ago. This is not that. This is not Democrat, Republican. This is simply how do we live in a system of government that sometimes we find flawed? What do we do and how do we do it? And so to get into this text, we have to understand something that our whole series is on a gospel culture. And if you know where we came from, it's this brand new community in Rome. And the Jews were there and then the Jews got kicked out and Rome took over the mantle of Jesus, the cause of Christ. And when the Jews came back five years later, they thought the church was dead, that it died with them. Like deep down, we all believe if I left, my church would die, you know? 
And, and they came back to find their church flourishing. It just looked a little different. And so you have this tension. You have outright fighting between the Jewish Christians and the Roman Christians. And Paul writes this letter to say, guys, get along. Jesus is bigger. And so it really is a forging of a brand new community together. It's a brand new people group that come together. And so he's laying out these principles of now how you live not in a Jewish community or a Roman community, but a Jesus community. And so over the last few weeks, we've talked about how a Jesus community, a gospel community is outwardly uh, uh, convict, inwardly convicted, not outwardly critical. That's where we pray each week. We talked about how me has to be secondary to the we or the good of us is better than the good of me. That how we love is from delight and not simply duty. Last week, we talked about how the answer to evil is kindness instead of violence or retribution. And this week, we talk about our response to government. So what I'm going to do, because we're going to kind of chop this up uh, as we go along, I want to read the whole thing in total, just so where we go, you can have a context for it when we get there. So let me read the first seven verses of, of Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except by God's appointments and the authorities that exist have been instituted by God. So the person who resists such authority resists the ordinances of God. And those who resist will incur judgment for rulers cause no fear for good conduct, but for bad. Do you desire not to fear authority? Do good and you'll receive its commendation because it is God's servant for your well-being. But be afraid if you do wrong because government does not bear the sword for nothing. It is God's servant to administer punishment on the person who does wrong. Therefore, it's necessary to be in subjugation, not only because of the wrath of the authorities, but also because of your conscience. Verse six, for this reason, you pay taxes. For the authorities of God are servants devoted to governing. Pay, um, pay everyone what is owed, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, and respect to whom respect is due, and honor to whom honor is due. Now, we have to understand the context of this passage. I've said it before several times, but if you rip passages out of their context, what you get is a text without context is simply a pretext for a proof text, is how we say it. What that means is that I can take any text out of context, and if nobody does the homework, I can make it say what I want it to say, and that's not good. A couple examples that we know of is, let's say, Matthew 18, where two or more are gathered, there I will be. And you read that, and we pray that, and we say, God, we know you're here because two of us are together. And then what happens if you're praying by yourself in your bedroom? You know? Does that mean God's not there? No. That passage is on the discipline of the church. It's on discipline within the church. It's a very difficult thing. It's a very hard thing in confrontation in a community-driven environment like the first century. And so what God promises is even in those really difficult moments when it feels like you're out on a ledge, I'm going to be with you. It's comforting. It's reassuring. Or one of my favorites, right? The Philippians 4.13 one, the, the coffee mug verse of I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, that's not true. I still can't dunk a basketball. I quoted that verse all through high school and then leapt and I barely hit the net, all right? <laughs> Five, nine, white kid. <laughs> and, and so what we know from those passages in the Philippians passage is Paul saying, hey, whether I'm rich or poor, whether I'm alone or with people, in all sorts of circumstances, I can find joy because God is good enough because Christ gives me strength to find it. So context is key. And in our passage this morning that talks about government, what we have to understand is the context behind it. So if you're a first century Jewish person, you, you hated a couple things, um, all Gentiles, <laughs> but especially Rome, because they were your oppressors. And you got to understand the deep-seated desire of the Jewish people to rule themselves, which they haven't done very much in their existence. 
They thought that we are only going to rule ourselves and everybody else is getting in the way of God's way of me ruling. That's why Deuteronomy 17, for example, says, be sure not to appoint over your king um, the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. And they would quote this in the first century. Do not place a foreigner over you who is not an Israelite. So there's an intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testament, about 400 years, where Rome really grew in power and started oppressing more and more and more. And that period is filled with three major rebellions of the Jewish people against Rome. As Rome became more and more impressive, they tried to essentially punch back more and more. Within a decade of writing this, in AD 66, there's going to be a huge revolt in the Jewish world that's going to kind of cause the downfall of Jerusalem. The Jewish people did not take kindly to any kind of government that wasn't from their own people. But their defiance went farther than that. First century commentators and historians say that not only did they fight back, but they refused to pay taxes because they didn't believe in their governing authorities. They had big revolts and small riots all the time. And it essentially led to what we've talked about in AD 49-ish. It led to Claudius literally kicking the Jewish people out of Rome because they were a problem. And so in that context, Paul says to these people that a a proclivity to try and fight back, be subject to your authorities. We have to understand why he says it. And and they they didn't get God's design. They thought it was gonna be a military uprising, so much so that, you know, do you know the last phrase, the last question that the followers of Jesus asked Jesus before he ascended into heaven in Acts 1, 8? The last thing they say to him is in verse six, Lord, are you at this time going to restore your kingdom, the kingdom to Israel? So before he ascends into heaven, they say, is now the time that we get to rule and reign and Rome is finally over? They just didn't get it. I wouldn't either. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not saying they're dumb. I'm saying that we have a proclivity to try and hold on to power, especially militarily and governmentally. And so it comes from this context. It comes from that context that Rome looks at Jewish believers and Roman believers and says, you are, heir, you are subject to all authorities. And with this verse, what we get into, it's a little more wisdom literature-like. So wisdom literature, Proverbs and Psalms and such, wisdom literature stated principles over promises. Like if, if the world that's supposed to operate this, day, this way does, this is how it's gonna look. So for example, uh, Proverbs 22, 6. You've probably heard this one. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Now, if you've got grown kids that don't follow Jesus, you're like, I I did that and it doesn't seem to work out very well. Is God not good? No, no, what that means there, it's a Proverbs. It's a wisdom verse. He's saying, hey, this is a principle, not a promise. If 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 you raise your kids in the ways of God, hopefully it grows their affection towards God. If you don't, then they probably have zero chance of finding affection in God. And we did a whole sermon on that a few weeks ago. To that, I just say, if you're in that middle place where your kids have ran away from God, wait and pray. And so I think this verse, more than the others in our section, is more wisdom lit-like, which means when it talks about the government as being intrinsically good and every hair in the back of your head stands up and says, yeah, not this one, Rome wasn't either. And he's saying, this is an ideal principle that I want the church to believe in and to live into. And we're gonna talk about why. And what we're gonna do is break up this passage and talk through, okay, what are three things that we shouldn't see from this passage of ideal that God's painting about government and people? What are three things that maybe we've pulled from this passage that I don't think are worth being pulled from it? And then what are three things that we can pull from this passage that are worth pressing into? So the first one, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. You know what that doesn't mean? 
follow blindly whatever the government says. And all the Texans said, no kidding, Charlie. I mean, you know, this is not a problem we have. But just know first and foremost, and it kind of goes without saying, but you still need to say it, that God would never ask you to violate his character or his goodness because the government says so. That's not the ideal design. And we have example after example of that in the New Testament and the Old Testament too. When Pharaoh said to the Hebrews to kill all the kids, they said no. When the book of Daniel was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they got thrown into the fire. When Daniel said, was said not to pray, he disobeyed it. In, in a couple chapters in Acts, what you see is, Peter get put in prison because he's preaching the gospel and then God breaks him out and then they try to find him. They said, where is this inmate escaped to? The same place he got arrested to preach the gospel. And when they said, what are you doing? Do you know what his response was? In Acts 5, we must obey God rather than people. The first thing we know when we come to this passage and we necessarily don't live in this time anymore, but it's why this verse has been misused so often in our past is governments will say, you have to listen to me. That's how God designed it. And we can say, maybe, if you're in line with God. Now, I think those times when the government goes against God are more few and far between than we believe they are because <laughs> we don't like to submit to authority. That's the next point. That's the point upcoming. But, but I think we have to begin with this idea that look, God's goodness is greater than any government. And when governments don't align with God's goodness, guess which one we choose? We choose God, always and over again. Two, I don't think it means uh, that God is responsible or approving of all authorities, if you continue on to the verse. For there is no authority except by God's appointment, and the authorities that exist have been instituted by God. That, to me, is the hardest part of this. I, I think of oppressive, not ours, I think of oppressive governments. And I read that verse and it says, no authority except by God's appointment. How did God put that guy there to kill people? How does God keep that guy in power, that person in power? What does God do with completely unjust systems of government that oppress people and kill people for their own gain, not their people's good? And to understand what Paul is saying, again, it's an ideal. It's not necessarily the everyday. What he's saying essentially in that moment is that God is still sovereign and you need to know that. So let's talk about the sovereignty of God. Because we live in this space, in this world, where God doesn't make every decision. You know that. If you believe God made every decision, you'd be way more Pentecostal than at another church. We do not believe God makes every decision for you. He gives us the freedom and the beauty of choice. As, as one philosopher would talk about, he gives us the, um, the decency of causality meaning he allows you to choose things that shape and form your world and mine. It's also a requirement of what true love actually is. And so what we have to do as Christians is say, what does this mean when it says that, that all authority there by God's appointment? It means that God allows them to reign and rule, but he's not responsible for their reign and rule. We choose people. We have broken systems. God is never at fault for bad choices by people. He wishes they wouldn't do it. Now, what it does mean is that in the middle of that, he's still in control. Jesus talks about it when he's arrested by Pilate. And Jesus looks at Pilate and says, the only authority you have is because my father in heaven lets you have authority. He's like, resets Pilate's perspective in that moment, you know? It's kind of like when I took driver's ed in high school, uh, back in the day. I don't know if kids still do that anymore. I took driver's ed, like, in person. And so I remember one of the first times I did my driving lesson, it was in some kind of Chevy Impala situation, and the guy was sitting on this side, and I was sitting on this side, and uh, I'm pretty arrogant at that point in my life, and so I was like, I got this. You just, like, lay down in the back, you know? And I remember the first turn I took was that 
a green light, I think it was, and I didn't see somebody coming, and I was making a left-hand turn, and there's a car coming towards us, and I didn't realize that this dude on my right had the power to stop the car whenever he wanted to. He had some pedals down there, you know? And so I press on the gas, and he presses on the brakes, and we don't move anymore. <laughs> and I thought, that's a good thing, and it stuck in my mind, because I thought, man, maybe I have something to learn. Uh, the sovereignty of God is not the ability of God to, to inform or decide every single decision. It's the power of God to break in when and how he seems fit and needs to. He's always in control whether or not we make decisions that do control our day-to-day. It's God's ability to press on that brake while we think we're driving and say, no, 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 no. Um, in the end, I'm, I'm still in control. So when it talks about, when it talks about all authority um, being given to God for all the appointments of authority in government, what he's saying is that there's never a governmental authority that is outside of my purview or control. Doesn't mean it's good, and it doesn't mean God likes it or approves of it or did it on purpose. It means that God's still in control of it. Uh, third thing, and this is kind of a, a, a niche one, but I've heard it used before, and so I want to tackle it. I, I don't think that this passage is necessarily a one-and-done argument for capital punishment. I, I don't have a problem if you believe in capital punishment, but I, I just don't think that this passage gets you there. Because people are going to point to uh, the verse, a couple verses down, four, five, six. But if you do wrong, be in fear, for it does not bear the sword in vain. The governments don't. It is God's servant to administer retribution to the wrongdoer. And what, what most people talk about there when they talk about capital punishment is this Roman principle called use gladi. And use gladi is the idea that Rome could kill anyone they wanted whenever they wanted. That's why, and the symbol of this was the sword. And so it's, it's kind of like them saying, hey, they get the power and ability to kill people at will because they're Rome. But, but the problem with that is that's not what Paul translates here. I think that more what he's saying is that government can and will dole out punishment if you rebel against it. It's kind of like that principle in Proverbs, spare the rod and spoil the child. That doesn't mean you have to beat your kid with a rod. If you choose to, we should talk. But that means that you have the right and, and you need to discipline in ways that make sense that lead towards good behavior. You understand the, the context of this passage. You got to understand that when Paul wrote this, his people that were rebelling, it it didn't go well because there was no such thing as a peaceful protest in Rome. Paul himself had been beaten with rods. He talks about in Corinthians. He'd been beaten with rods three different times to the point where some people even died by the Roman government. And so when he says phrases like it's God's servant to administer retribution to the wrongdoer, one, it's ideal, and then two, at the same time, I think he cares for his people and he doesn't want them to get hurt any more than they have to. Because in our culture, you can have peaceful protests. Rome didn't value grace. Rome didn't value freedom of speech. Rome didn't value meekness. They valued power. And at any given moment, they wanted to show you how powerful they were. That's why they implemented crucifixion to show you how vicious and powerful they were in spite of anything you think you are. And so I think this passage, he's saying, don't do this because if you do, this authority that might not be good can take it out on you. And he cared for them. But but more than that, what I think is profound about this passage is he's trying to care for his people in the middle of a broken government that he wishes was ultimately good. So three things we don't see. We don't see blind followingness from this passage, I, I don't think we can lay the blame of responsibility for bad governments on God. And, and that's not how sovereignty works in, in a world in which he gives us choice. And then three is, I think this gives a, governments the right to, you know, punish evil, 
but I don't think it's a full stop argument for capital punishment. You have to go a couple other places to get there. Again, we're not closing that conversation, just telling you my viewpoint. But it does give us three things to do. Let's go back to the beginning. Let every person be subject to government authorities. And that word subject there literally is a passive imperative in the Greek, which means that it is a command to you and it's something you do. So, so he's saying that you're going to submit and that that's not an option. That's not a choice. That's not something you don't have to do on Tuesday, but can do on Wednesday if you like what's being done today. That is an absolute imperative. It's a command for you. And, and get this, it's something that you should willfully put yourself under and do on your own, whether you voted for the guy or not. He's saying you will willfully submit to these governing authorities because that's the order through which God hopefully uh, initiates justice in our world. And again, if you remember the context, man, Rome came, or Paul came from a a far more oppressive government. Rome was far more oppressive than anything we've experienced in our lifetime. And if he can sit there and look at his people who are about to be beat for their faith, submit to your governing authorities, then we have no excuse not to. I will say two things. One, that submission is not silence. It's that quoted verse, or the quote that I like a ton, the only thing necessary for triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. So submission is not silence. And Jesus is a model for this whether it's in the temple, whether it's talking to lepers, or whether it's healing people on the Sabbath, Jesus is a model for standing up for the oppressed and the marginalized in a way that didn't usurp the power of the government, but also said, this is not okay, and we need and want better. I feel blessed that we're from a place in this country where we can do that often. Uh, Two, is that submission is also not worship. In our current political landscape, we need to not worship our politicians. You know who loves this passage? Submit to your authorities. Whoever won the last election, (laughs) you know? And we need to remember that at the end of the day, politics is politics. People are people. I love what J.C. Ryle says. The best of men are only men at their very best. So even if we submit to our government, we don't worship our politicians. We fully remember that they're not perfect people. And our only way to restoration and salvation is the person of Jesus, not the people we elect. Look, we're not going to build a God society by electing the right kind of people or the right platform. That comes through Jesus. That's why we're here. And so we have to remember our priorities when we talk about government. It's never meant to be the means of restoration in our world. Jesus does that, and he's enough. And so it's not silence, nor is it worship. And so what he's going to say is, you're going to willfully submit to the ways of your government, again, as long as it does go against my ways and my good. You're going to do it because, and here's the second thing we see, because God is a God of order. Always. We live in a society that values freedom above all, that values independence above all. And one thing the gospel is going to speak into, the Bible is going to speak into again and again and again, is the best good for you is not your independence, it's your dependence on God. Period. Our best good as a people is not our independence as Crossroads Bible Church, but our dependence on the ways and rhythms of God because God is an ordered God. When he created creation, he did it in an order that allowed us to be a part of that order so then we could kick down that order to the rest of creation. That's what he meant when he said, you're gonna reign and rule the fish and the birds and the the cows of the field. You're gonna reign and rule so that people might see my goodness. Order is better than disorder all day long, because that's how God created the world to work. The question we need to ask is, do we love order or do we hate it? Who are we submitting to? And if you can't find and fill in that answer, then we have a problem worshiping self. 
Order is better than disorder because that's how God designed it because we need our lives ordered because chaos is not a friend of growth. Soccer update, everybody. Um, <laughs> there's like a, a gentle, like, oh, no. <laughs> Yesterday we played a game. The other team played a game. My team was there. And um, I uh, walked up to the field <laughs> this is the first time that I'm beginning to believe that maybe our team's problems isn't really our team, but maybe they need another coach. Um, I walked up to the field, and the other team, you know, I get there, our game was at 10, so I get there like 9.55, and I'm rolling up to the field, and the other team was already there, and they were running, dr- these are four-year-old girls, they were running drills. The coach had a whistle, and when he blew it, they did things with soccer balls, and he blew the whistle and said, girls, line up. And they all ran over and lined up and did drills. Meanwhile, if you look on my half of the field, I'm over there saying, please stop hanging on the goalpost. Did you bring a soccer ball today? Right? My wife even commented afterwards, like, it was very different. I knew we didn't stand much of a chance. <laughs> and we did not. My point is simply, man, it was just a stark contrast for me on order is different than disorder. We flourish under order. If you have small kids, you know they need constraint in order. God designed us that way so that we would never run too far from his goodness. And so when he talks about submitting, it's this principle that's even bigger than just a government. It's a principle that we are called to be a people of order. And we submit to things in this world because ultimately the the Ten Commandments talk about it. It's how we submit to God. And let me just interject real quick. You know what doesn't have to happen for you to submit? The thing that you're submitting to does not have to be perfect. Sometimes you think, well, it's not perfect, so I don't need to submit. That's not in the scriptures. The scriptures say submit to your parents and your parents weren't perfect. I say to my kids all the time, I'm not perfect, but you're going to listen. And then they don't. And then I got to figure out what to do. But it's just this idea that we as a people sometimes think, well, if the thing I'm submitting to isn't perfect, then I don't have to submit, and that's just not true. So just because our government sometimes is broken doesn't give us license to not submit to a broken government, because you know what that means? That means you, for some reason, don't believe that you're broken too. And let me tell you something. Yes, you are. Welcome to church, everybody. That is why we're here. So we submit because God's way is submission. God is a God of order but also because that fundamentally we, we know that we need order in our life and in our world. It's a good thing. So in the section on wrath that it talks about, the, the, the sword, the bad part was, that, again, I don't think it meant the governments have the right or license or liberty just to kill anybody, but at the same time, I think it's a good message for them to hear. This is a first century world where they had no control about 10 years, some really awful, awful persecution is going to happen to them. Awful. The second worst in the first 300 years. They're going to lose family and friends. The emperor in Rome, starting about with Nero and then it continued on, didn't only say that I'm your ruler and leader, they also said I'm your God. So Christians got in trouble by saying, no, we have one God and it's not you. And in the middle of that landscape, people needed to be reminded that God was still in charge and he was still good. They needed to be reminded that no matter what else happened in the world and how bad it looks, that the truth wasn't that God was absent, but he was ever more present. And what happens is when we remind ourselves of that order, we remember that God's still at the top of it, that our world has not flown into chaos or disorder or anarchy. No matter how bad, no matter how bad our country gets, and I don't think it's that bad, I'm not, I'm not an alarmist, no matter, but it needs some work. No matter how bad our government gets, I need to remember that God's order is still where he's at the top. That God is still, Jesus is still on the throne, and he still reigns and rules. It goes with the idea of his sovereignty. 
in an especially bleak time in the first century Christian world, by submitting to order, they remembered that God is the one in charge of all order. My kid, my son, who's about one, a little over, I guess he's, I don't know if they're night terrors or not, but in the middle of the night, he'll just start screaming, you know? He probably wakes up and realizes that his room's dark, and I was there, and now I'm not there. And we have these monitors, and so I'll pull it up on my phone, and I'll see him. And over the monitor, we'll just say, hey, buddy, it's okay, I'm here. It's okay, I'm here. Go back to sleep. And half the time, that works. And he calms down, he lays back down, he lays, he just needed to be reminded that in the middle of the darkness around him, I was still there, and I still saw him, and I was still there for him, and I was still near. I think this is what that passage does. When we submit to order, we remember the order of God in charge of all the other orders in our world. That's what we're proclaiming every single time when we submit to things we even disagree with that aren't evil is that ultimately why we do it, God's in control and he's worthy of following. So we see that we do need to submit. We see that, that when we submit, it's a way that God ordered our world and our lives. And then finally, I think that we submit by seeing the government as a means for good. Um, and some of you are saying, what are you talking about? <laughs> I wonder if we think the government is a means for good. You can look at any study. We've quoted them a few times, but the biggest, most popular one is Pew Research. They did a study every year on the state of our trust in government, and they basically said that 24% of Americans think the government's worth anything good. It does anything good or will do anything good. We just don't believe it. So in our passage, it says, do you desire to fear authority, to do good? You receive its commendation because it's God's servant for your well-being. And what Paul does is he, is he paints this picture that ultimately, in an ideal world, in a proverbial wisdom-lit kind of sense, that the government would live out the ways and rhythms of God in the world as they order their lives around God and the things underneath it are ordered around the things of God because they follow people that are ordered by God. What's intriguing to me about this passage, which kind of is a gut punch to me, is it talks about, the way it talks about government officials is a little different than how we do. And again, keep in mind, the Roman officials were not good government officials to Christians. He says this in verse four, for he is the government officials, God's servant to you, to do you good. He goes on to say, he is God's servant and agent of wrath to bring punishment. That word servant in the first one in verse four is the word where we get the word deacon from. So essentially calling them deacons. He goes on to say in verse six that the authorities are God's servants. And the word he uses there is a different one in the Greek, but it's only used to refer to church officers in the first century in Pauline literature. Douglas Moo, probably the foremost uh, theologian on Romans says, Paul could not more strongly have shown that civic leaders are in fact serving God's own purposes. If that's how Paul talks about civic leaders and governmental authorities, here's my question. How do you, how do I, is it in line with how God says to talk about government? Or is it not? He's painting this picture. The government can be something more and towards an ideal. And there's two tensions here. Don't get me wrong and go through this pretty quickly. There's the Romans thir or the Revelation 13 tension, which is, Revelation 13 is when it talks about government being used for only evil things and there's some rebellion happening at the end times. We're caught in the middle. This idea that Paul is, ideal that Paul is painting and this one day thing that will happen when government is only evil all the time, we don't live there yet. So we live in the middle of that tension, knowing this is what we're trying to call people into. When Paul wrote this, he, he probably knew that the Roman uh, governmental authorities would actually read it. I guarantee you they read it. So in, in one sense, he's, I think he's trying to call them into something better. It's like at the end of the night when I put the kids to bed. 
We read books not about kids that disobey their parents, no matter how their day went. We read books about kind, happy, caring kids that give lots of hug and pick up after themselves, you know? We call them in to something greater. I think that's what Paul is doing here. I think another tension that we find here is he's saying that the government is God's means of wrath on injustice in the world. Bigger conversation, but, but last week we talked about how we don't individually carry out wrath against injustice because that's not how God dealt with evil. But he's saying my means for that is hopefully doled out through the authorities above you. So like in, in our context, it's courts and lawmakers and lawyers. Like ideally, they take care of the people that need to be taken care of. It's important to understand that he paints this picture that government is God means for good. And I think we need to remember that in how we talk about it, how we think about it, how God talks about it. And the last thing he ends by saying, for this reason, also pay taxes. The authorities are God's servants devoted to governing. Pay everyone what is owed, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, and respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. I think finally we see that we submit um, because we see it as our act of reconciliation in a world that needs to be reconciled. So in a hard first century world with a very different and much more difficult government, Paul ends by saying, do the little things today that your government asks you to do, that your government calls for you to do. And that's really important, going back to context, that's really important because the Jews were known for two things. One is they revolted a lot. So much so it got them kicked out in the first place. And two, they were also known uh, for disengagement in the world around them because they really thought Jesus was coming back and they had no need for the world or other people. One third century historian says this. He says that under the pagan Roman empire, Christians were not executed for inflammatory teaching or behavior, but for presumed antisocial tendencies. So what Paul's calling them to do In a culture of people trying to escape, he's saying, hey, no, no, the way of Jesus is not escaping, it's engaging. One theologian said about this in Paul's claim, he's calling them, it's a pragmatic appeal for loyal conduct to avoid a fresh edict. You know, when you talk about our relationship, affiliation with the government, historically the church has stood in one of four positions. Uh, There's something called Erastianism, which is basically that the state controls the whole church. There's a theocracy, which is the church uh, controls the state. There's something called Constantarianism, which is essentially that the government's the government. They work really closely and enhanced. They both might flourish and come to power. And then there's this idea of partnership, which is where I think Paul lands. The church and state recognizing and encouraging each other's distinct God-given responsibilities in a spirit of constructive collaboration. I think this is what Paul is calling us to do. The gospel culture is different than the culture around us. And I think we're moving more and more in our culture of rebelling against governmental authorities and not pressing in and trying to engage. We are trying to escape and not engage so that we might be reconciled. You know, the scariest polls for me to read right now? I'll read you a couple. Uh, There was a research done at the University of um, California, UC David actually, from May to June of this year. A total of 8,600 people were paneled, and they said 50.1% agreed, quote, that in the next several years, civil war will be likely in the United States. There's a national survey done um, in 2021, and it says nearly half, 16% of Americans believe that civil war is very likely. 30% thought it was somewhat likely. 42% thought it was unlikely, and 11% didn't know. 
I think our culture more and more is moving towards this idea that in order to fix the, the order of the world, we have to escape it and not engage it. I think Paul looks at these people that tried to run away from the government and says, stop it, turn the other direction. Even if you don't agree, submit, because the way that we show the beauty and the reconciliation of Jesus is through engaging in the governmental systems and authorities around us, even and especially when they're not perfect. The beautiful call of reconciliation is not escaping, but engaging so that people might see a God that's engaged. So he writes this section with this lofty goal of what government is and with our call to submit to it. But I think in the end, he's saying, do these little things so that when you do it, you might be a part of the reconciliation God is bringing all around you. And I think it's our charge right now not to run away, but run towards even systems we think are broken. Not sacrificing the goodness and character of God, but by saying that God's, God's fixed even more broken things than government. Look at me, you know? as we lean inward towards conviction and not outward towards critique. So I, I think from here, I don't know if it gives us a full-on, you know, uh, uh, theological or systematic approach to how we deal with every government, but I think it gives us the beginnings of one to engage and not escape. And that starts with little things, man, like, like how we talk about our government, you know? How do we talk about the people that we've elected or that we haven't elected and didn't want to? words, the Bible says, words have power. They carry with it the idea to literally form the future that we want to see happen together. The way we talk matters. How do we talk about those governing us? What if, what if, what if just this week, instead of critiquing, we cheered on those in government, even if we disagreed with them? Don't agree with what they're doing, but we can be kind. (laughs) We can engage in a way that shows that God cares about government and that he wants to redeem and restore it. Because here's what I think is a fundamental issue that we're dealing with is the point of the Bible was a spiritual redemption, not social reform. Social reform comes, but God's after our hearts, minds, and souls so that we might live out the ways of Jesus. And it was always built so that individual transformation might lead to institutional reform, not the other way around. So as we are convicted about how we are broken, we then can lean into those in charge of us and find them in a sense with a sense of compassion and encouragement. So what would it look like if like the church wasn't mad at government, didn't say terrible things about government because we, we have our people that do that. And instead, instead, instead said, man, I might disagree with all these things, but we're gonna engage in this together so that people might see the reconciliation of Jesus. We're not called to flee outside the city as Romans say to his people. Don't get evicted again, stay in so that people might see God because people can't see God if we leave as the remnant of the church. I'd say that as we do this together, just a really, really easy one is, um, man, vote. <laughs> you know, it seems to be, I'm not gonna tell you how to vote. We don't do that at Crossroads, but we do think voting's very, very important. It's our ways to shape our future together. God cares, we should care. It's a really easy, low-hanging fruit one. And then thirdly, this week, this week, today, pray for your people that are in charge of government. Whether you voted for them or not, pray for them. We talk about it all the time. Prayer does something that we can't do on our own. It gives us a natural love and compassion where love and compassion wouldn't normally be. It's really hard to hate people you're praying for. You can disagree with them all day long. Hard to hate people you're praying for. And so pray for the people in charge of us. It's funny, yesterday I was at the men's breakfast and we're doing a thing this semester and next, which I really love. We're just long form reading the Bible together, kind of like the first church. And so we read through Philippians yesterday. So we get together, we eat some good food, we hang out for a bit, and then we just read some scripture together. And we say, 
How is God teaching us? What is God teaching us? Like, that's what they did back in the day. They don't take 45 minutes to go through a verse and a half like I do. They're much, much better. They read the whole book and say, what's the overall impression we get from the goodness of God in this book? And as we were reading it yesterday, verse six, right? That really popular verse that talks about um, that God's not gonna let us go and he's gonna faithfully continue unto completion the work he began within us, like hit me. You know what I thought about? I thought that the goodness of the faithfulness of God is that he's not going anywhere and no matter how bad my tomorrow is, he promises to still help and encourage and build towards me and build me up into Christ-likeness. And I thought that's the church's job with government. As easy as it is to retreat and go to our separate corners, as easy as it is to just watch the same news shows all the time, as easy as it is to only have friends just like you, as easy as it is to say, I'm out with this government, it's not good enough, as easy as it is to escape, Jesus calls us to engage so that people might see his goodness and his reconciliation and ultimately bring redemption. So as followers of Jesus, that's what we do, that's what Paul's calling them to do in a much rougher governmental situation than ours, to press in so that people might see God's goodness, even in government. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful that you're still in control. No matter who gets elected in the next few months, that you're still in control. No matter how angry we get at our government because it doesn't feel like it's for our good, you're still in control. I pray the church can be a place of compassion and angry conversations in our culture. We can be encouraging and others try to tear down. In the little ways, in the little ways, and how we talk about our government, people can see that Jesus is still good. That we willfully do the small things joyfully so that people can see Jesus. And so go before us today, Holy Spirit, and help us in all the ways without the goodness of God.